Uh, we started last week and we uh, did not get through uh, how far I wanted to get through in the book of Ephesians. We got through chapter 3 and looking at the train of thought here, we're going to pick up in chapter 4 today and hopefully finish through the end of the book. But I want to take us back and just to kind of see us uh, see the theme of Ephesians weaved through the first three chapters. As we said, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are very theologically heavy. There is a lot of deep theological material here in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read the uh, first uh, 14 verses and we saw the beautiful portrait that Paul paints of us having blessings in Christ in the spiritual realm. Now, as we looked at these blessings in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we noticed that all these blessings God has done for us in Christ. That was one of our key words, in Christ. And here's what God has done for us in Christ without our help, without our input, simply because of our faith in Jesus. Here's what he did. Number one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. By his grace, he made us accepted in the beloved. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. We have wisdom and understanding. We have knowledge of the mystery of his will. We have obtained an inheritance. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now those are the blessings that we have in the heavenly places through Christ. And these blessings, we said, come through Jew and Gentile alike. And that's going to be one of the major themes that we find here in the book of Ephesians. Just like we saw in uh, Romans, just like we saw uh, you know, someone in 1 Corinthians, is this relationship between Jew and Gentile. And it is really fleshed out here how these two can become one body in Christ. But it starts with Jew and Gentile as individuals receiving Christ and receiving all of the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. These blessings have come upon Jew and Gentile. Then we looked in chapter 1, 15 through 23 at the thanksgiving and the prayer that Paul prays for wisdom and revelation, that we would know Christ, that we would know him, that we would know our calling in him, and that we would know his power. In chapter 2, we come and we're taking it from really individually, and we're spreading it out a little bit, still staying individually, still talking about the blessings, but here we talk about reconciliation. And that how we, Jew and Gentile, are reconciled to God through Christ. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were quickened, we were made alive with Christ. We've come apart from the world that we used to live in, being ruled over by it. And we've been set free into the kingdom of His dear Son. So in chapter 2, we find the reconciliation uh, to God through Christ from the, our, the believer's past practices and we find the believer's present position, and that is being in Christ. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, this is where we saw uh, things become corporate. We have our individual blessings in heavenly places in chapter 1. We have coming out of the world and being reconciled to God in chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, we see not the reconciliation of individuals 
to God through Christ, but the reconciliation of two people groups. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile through Christ and the Spirit. And how Jew and Gentile were once two bodies, two separate peoples, but now they have been made one. Because Christ broke the partition, the wall that stood between the two. He broke it down and took it out of the way. And now the two have become one. And this totally defeats the notion that there are two separate covenant peoples of God's. There are people that teach, well, God has a covenant with the Jews, according to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And God has a covenant through Jesus with the church, the Gentiles, and that these are two covenants. You cannot hold to a two-covenant people theory, according to Ephesians chapter 2. The two have become one. And then in chapter 3, we saw how Paul talks about his role in the work of reconciliation, reconciling the world back to Christ. And we ended chapter 3 with the prayer and doxology. And it all ended up with love. That we said love was the glue that held and that holds the body of Christ together. Through all of our differences, through all of our our diversity, love is the key. And that love is how we are filled with the fullness of God. And God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. And that power is love. So we see how he starts out individually with our spiritual blessings, individually of how uh, he brought us out from the world that we lived in, whether the Jewish world or the Gentile world, and he has brought us together into one body. Now he's going to continue this theme of unity in the body. So as we come to chapter 4, we're going to look in 4, 5, and 6 today. If we come to chapter 4, the first thing we're going to see is how Paul exhorts the Ephesian churches to maintain unity. And how the Jew and Gentile can grow and be strengthened together in one body. So I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling that you've been called. And what have they been called to? They've been called to be the people of God in one body. Now, how do we do this? How do they do this? How do we do this today? He tells us, verse number two, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he says, keep this unity, but you have to keep this unity by being lowly and meek. Long, being long suffering, patient with one another forbearing one another in love. And this is so very critical and so very important to unity in the body. I mean, it's hard to get a a group of people to be in unity. It's hard for two people living in a home together to be in unity. And how do we achieve that unity? How How does a husband and a wife achieve unity? How do we achieve unity in our families? How do we achieve unity in church? We're doing it by be by being humble. By not thinking we're always right, by not thinking we're better than somebody else or our ways are better than somebody else's ways. We do it through humbling ourselves and being and having lowliness and meekness in our attitude, long suffering, being patient with others, forbearing one another in love, and endeavoring doing all that we can to keep the unity of the spirit. 
spirit in the bond of peace. So he encourages them here in exhorting them to be one together through humility and love and grace. And then he begins to show that what we're part of one body comes from the unity of everything else that has to do with our faith. He says in verse number four, there is one body. There's not 50 different bodies. There's one body. And he says there is one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord Jesus Christ that we all submit to. One faith that we all believe in. And one baptism. One baptism where we are baptized into one body. Now, I know there are many different kinds of baptisms that we talk about in the Bible. Uh, there's the baptism of water. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But I believe this goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it says, By one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Then he goes on to say in verse number 6, There's one God and one Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. So he stresses the oneness, the unity of our faith, the unity of, of our Father, and the unity of the body. But we know that there's one body, but we know that there are many different members to this one body. So in verse number 7 of, of, of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, But to every one of us, because the one body is made up of individuals, every one of us is given grace according to the measure of, of the gift of Christ. Every one of us have a different gift. Every one of us have a different function in the body. Every one of us have a different part to play. But yet we are still a part of one body. And he says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And it talks about, and this is a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding this verse. I don't want to make it to say more than what Paul was intending to get his point across here in Ephesians. We know that he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. We know that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's probably just talking about his death, that Jesus died, he descended first, and then he ascended. He died and he ascended. And when he ascended up in the heavens... He gave gifts unto men. And the gifts that he gave are really ministry gifts to the body of Christ to help build and edify the body. So through Christ's death and his ascension, he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to his body. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, Jesus in, in the Gospels is referred to as all of these. He was the sent one from the Father. He was an apostle. He was a prophet for the woman as well. So we know you are a prophet. He was an evangelist because he went out and preached the good news. He was a pastor. He's the great shepherd. And he was a teacher, a rabbi. So Jesus was all of these to his disciples. But then when he ascended, he distributed these gifts to the church. So he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And here's why he gave them. Verse number 12 says, For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints. Now you have to look at this word for here in verse number 12. The word for there means with the ultimate intention of. 
And this is very important to the church today because we kind of have a mentality in America today that we're going to hire a professional, we're going to hire a pastor, we're going to hire a teacher, we're going to hire somebody to do the work of the ministry. To do the work of the ministry. So we're going to hire a pastor and a youth pastor. They're going to do the work of the ministry and we're going to sit back and do nothing and watch them do the work of the ministry. That is not what these ministry gifts were given for. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers were given for, were given with the ultimate intention of the equipping of the saints. So it's my job as a pastor and as as a teacher to equip you to go out and be the people of God in the world, to equip you to serve and to use your gifts that God has given you to build up the body. So he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers with the ultimate intention of the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints with the ultimate intention of doing the work of the ministry. So it's the saints that serve and minister and do the work of the ministry that are equipped by these gifts that God has given. And then it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for, with the ultimate intention of edifying the body of Christ. So when the apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers equip the saints, and the saints do the work of the ministry, then the body is edified. The body is edified. And here's Paul's desire, verse 13. Till we all come Jew and Gentile alike, till we all come in the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would all grow and mature, that we all individually, when we're using our gifts, when we're using our calling, we individually come together, build up the body, and grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the first 16... In the first few verses here, we see the exhortation to maintain unity. That the Jew and Gentile are both together in one body through humility, love, and grace, and we defend that unity. And we grow up into maturity by the body being edified. And when we grow up into maturity, verse 14, he says that we would be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So we are to grow up so that we would not be children and that we would not be deceived. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things. That we would mature and grow up into Christ in all things. From who the whole body, this is a very important scripture, and this scripture several years ago just jumped out at me. Verse 16, from the whole body, the whole body, Fitted, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. According to the effectual working of the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now here's what's important. The body, we have a body. You remember the song that we all learned growing up? uh, You know, the leg bones connected to the knee bone, the knee bone's connected to it, and we we connect all these bones together because our bodies are not just individual members scattered. Here's what's important. You can have a strong member of a body, but that doesn't mean the body's going to be strong. You can have a strong individual member, but a weak body because the body is all of the members joined together. If you have a body that is dismembered, 
You're not going to have a body that can function. You're not going to have a body that can grow. So all the members have to be joined together. And that's an important part that we miss. So you can have two individual, you know, we have bones in our body, but these bones are, are joined together by a joint. And a joint is the thing that connects two members together that causes them to move and to function. Well, in the body of Christ, that joint is our relationship. That joint is our unity. That joint is our love. And when two individual members, you can have two strong members, strong by themselves, but yet still not accomplish the purposes of the body. But when those two members are joined together by love, when they're joined together by relationship, when they're joined together by by peace, when they're joined together by patience, the joint supplies. And a body will only function as smooth as the joints allow them to function. And sometimes you have to go in and clean a joint out. Sometimes you have to go in and, and fix that joint and fix the relationship. So the whole body is joined together and compacted by every joint. All those relationships supply. But the joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. It's me loving you and you loving me. That strengthens the joint. It's me being patient with you and you being patient with me. It's me praying for you and you praying for me. It's me showing you grace and mercy and you showing me grace and mercy. It's me helping you and showing you compassion in your time of need and you helping me and showing me compassion in my time of need. Those things strengthen the joints so that we just don't have strong members alienated, dismembered from the body. But every member is working so that the joints would be strengthened. And every joint supplies life to every part of the body so that life would flow throughout the body. That's how important the unity of the body is. So Paul sets this up by the exhortation to maintain unity. Now, How does the body practically function? That's the next part. What is the practical outworking of unity? So when we come to chapter 4, verse number 17, going all the way down through verse number, or through chapter number 6 and verse number 9, these are practical outworking. So we have moved from the very heavy theological um, material beginning in chapter 1 with the spiritual blessings, the chapter 2, how we are saved by grace through faith and how we're regenerated through God, and chapter 3, how the the Jew and Gentile are formed together in one body, a holy temple that, that grows up. That's heavy in theological matters. You know, and even in chapter 4, there's some theological matters. The teaching of you know, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and maintaining the unity. Now he gets down to the heart of the matter. Now that we have all these spiritual theological truths in the first part of Ephesians, in the second part of Ephesians, we have very practical guidelines of how we can practically maintain unity, how we can practically work so that the joints would be strengthened and supply life. And this is our practical everyday living. How do we live in and as the body of Christ? And that's what we're going to look at. And there's three major ways that we do this. The first major way is by putting off the old life and its old ways that bring conflict and division. 
Now, Paul's going to give some imperatives. He's going to give some what we would almost see as commands. But these commands are not just in isolation. They relate back to how we treat one another and how the relationship and the unity of the body can be strengthened. So notice he says here in verse number 17, This I say and testify in the Lord that you do not walk as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, for their understanding is darkened, and they're alienated from the life of God, and they have ignorance in them. And this ignorance comes through the hardness and the blindness of their heart. So here's what he encourages. In verse number 22, here's what he encourages the believers in the body. That you put off concerning the former lifestyle, the old man, the old person, that old nature, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts. That's what he says in verse 22. Now I'm going to skip verse 23 and I want to look at 22. 22 says, put off the old life. 24 says, and put on the new man. Put on the new life, the new nature, which is not corrupt, but after God or like God is created in true righteousness and true holiness. So what we have here is we have the putting off of the old life and the putting on of the new life. The old life was their own way of living, the Gentiles' own way of living, the Jews' own way of living, and what, and what produced in them this form of looking at one another differently and what made them be separate. And to put on the new life, which brings them together. So how do we do this? How do we put off the old life and put on the new life? How do we go from verse 22 to verse 24? And the key is verse number 23. Verse 22, that you put off the old life, Verse 23, that you are renewed, made new in the spirit of your mind. And verse 23, that you put on the new man. The putting on of the new man comes when we renew our minds, when we have a change of thinking, a change of vision, a change of attitude, when we look at one another differently. When before I might have seen you as my enemy, before I might have seen you as different, before I might have seen you as, well, that's, that's those people over there that worship different and do different than we do. But now I have a change of mind. It goes back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We judge no man after the flesh. The flesh died when a person was born again. So now I don't judge you by the flesh, but I receive you after the Spirit. And therefore you are a new creation in Christ. So I'm putting off the old man, putting on the new man by renewing my minds. And then notice some of the things he says here. He says here in verse number 25, put away lying. Speak truth to your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry, but sin not. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. You know, a lot of uh, couples adopt that. We won't go to bed angry. But he's not addressing just husbands and wives here. He's not addressing husbands and wives at all. He's addressing members and, and people of the body of Christ. How many times do we hold grudges? I've seen people hold grudges in the church for years. For years. But he says, do not let the sun go down your anger. Neither give place to the devil, the accuser, our adversary. Let him that stole steal no more. Don't steal from other people. But rather labor, working with your hands, so that you may have to give to those who are in need. Do not let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's, just not, that, that's not just meaning saying a cuss word. 
That's speaking against other people. But use that which is good to the edifying of one another, so that you may minister grace to the hearers. So that doesn't mean, well, I just, oops, I said a bad word today. I let corrupt communication. No, that's you're communicating to somebody. That's the words you use. And the words you use can build others up or the words you use can tear others down. He says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Now, I've, I've heard that verse used for anything. You know, we can say, well, don't do this because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Don't do this because it grieves the Holy Spirit. But we have to read this in context. The Holy Spirit is grieved when the body is divided. The Holy Spirit is grieved when relationships are severed. When we're not loving and forgiving. When we're lying to one another. When we're being angry with one another. When we're speaking negative things against one another. That is what grieves the Holy Spirit. He's just not naming just a list of things that he just pulls. I don't want you to do this. Don't you do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. He's not just pulling out a list of commands. All this has to do with relationship in the body. And the unity of the body. Grieving the Holy Spirit comes when we lie to one another when we're angry with one another, when we give place to the accuser that wants to divide us, when we steal from one another, when we speak negatively against our brothers and sisters, that's what grieves the Holy Spirit. And verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away and be kind one to another. So the bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking is directed toward other people. He says, be kind one to another. It's all about keeping the unity of the body. For he said to them, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Do all that you can to live peacefully. Don't do these things that cause division and hurt others and cause the body to be dismembered. That grieves the Holy Spirit. It gives place to the devil. So in verse 32 he says, be kind one to another. Be tender-hearted. To one another. Forgive one another. So those three things right there. Be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgive one another. That's the attitudes and actions Christians should have toward each other. And then notice he says this, and this is a new covenant command. You know, Jesus taught in the, in, in the Gospels. He said, forgive one another. Because if you don't forgive then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. And he says there, so the burden of our forgiveness from God comes by how we forgive others. And I'm just going to be honest with you, that can be almost an impossible standard and put salvation solely upon us. What was Jesus doing? He was speaking with an old covenant mentality. The new covenant mentality is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. He says, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So under the new covenant, we forgive in accordance with how we are forgiven by God. God has forgiven me, therefore I should forgive others. God's not gone soft on forgiveness, it's just a different way of achieving it. Under the old covenant mindset, it was we forgive others and then God would forgive us. 
Under the old covenant, it's God responding to man's works. Under the new covenant, it's man responding to God's works. He has loved us first, therefore we love. He has forgiven us, therefore we forgive. He has shown us grace, therefore we are empowered to show others grace. The new commandment Jesus gave his disciples, not love one another or not love your neighbor as you love yourself. That makes you the standard of love. That would make you the standard of forgiveness. So he says, love one another, not as you love your neighbor, but love one another as I, Jesus says, has loved, have loved you. So Jesus is the standard. So the first practical outworking of righteousness is putting off the old life with its old ways that brought division and to put on the new life, which brings unity. The second practical outworking of righteousness comes in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is living like kingdom citizens. Living like citizens of the kingdom of God, not like citizens of the kingdom of this world. So in chapter 5, he starts off, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. As Christ has loved us, there's that again, it starts with Christ, and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetous, let it not be once named among the saints, neither filthiness or foolish talking or jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now here's the point, verse number five. For you know that no whoremonger, unclean person, covetous man, idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were sometimes in darkness, but now you are in the light. He's really kind of going back to the first part of, of chapter 2. You were one time in darkness, but now you are in the light. Since you are now in the light, walk as children of the light. So he's saying you were once in darkness. You were once citizens of the kingdoms of this world, which dwelled in darkness. But now you are citizens in the kingdom of God. Therefore, live as kingdom citizens. Where you've come out of, whether Gentile or Jew, you are now citizens in the kingdom. And now that you both are citizens in one kingdom, you might have been Gentiles of Rome, you might have been Gentiles of of Philippi, you might have been Gentiles in the area of Ephesus, you might have been Jews living in Jerusalem, but you were both living in darkness. And now you've come out of the kingdom of darkness and you've been made one in the kingdom of His Son. And this is how those in the kingdom of God live. This is how they behave. This is how they act. He says, so now you are children of light. So now walk as children of light. So he says in verse number nine, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Have no relationship, no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And and the point that he makes here is going down to verse number 18. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, wherein is that excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So you are in a spiritual kingdom. Now live and be filled with 
the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks for all things unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, live as kingdom citizens, not like the world. So number one, how do we practically outwork this righteousness? Number one, put off the old life, put on the new life. Number two, notice you've come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, so live as kingdom citizens. And number three, the practical outworking of righteousness, is let your households and your lives be lived out of love, mutual submission, and honor to God. So verse number, when we start in verse number 21, this section is chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse number 9. Now, verse number 22 is probably the verse that gets the most attention out of all of these verses. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands unto the Lord. Isn't that kind of our go-to verse in this, in this chapter? Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, that's not the point of this chapter. For number one, we miss the verse right before it. It's not just wives, submit to your own husbands, but verse 21 teaches the overall principle of mutual submission. Verse 21 says, Submitting yourselves in the body to one another in the fear of God. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So that's what we miss in the church setting. Mutual submission. And then he does talk about the households. And he talks about the households for a very specific reason. Especially the marriage covenant. Because the marriage covenant between a man and a, and a woman, and he's going to tell us, is a picture of Christ and the church. So if the picture of marriage between a man and a woman is skewed, so will the picture of Christ and his church be skewed. So he gives here, and he gives some practical advice. Wives, he does say, wives, submit to your own husbands. He's not teaching male dominance over women. Uh, he doesn't say women submit to men. He says wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Then he doesn't let the husbands off. He says husbands. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So there is a parallel. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, the church is subject to Christ. So just as the wife is subjected to her husband, the church is subjected to Christ. It's a picture. But he doesn't let the husbands off. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself for it to sanctify and cleanse it. So he can present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. So he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, but the husbands are not to dominate his wife, but to love his wife, even as Christ loved the church. And what kind of love is that? It is a love that knows no bounds and no measures. It's a love that goes above and beyond. It's a love that gives its very life, its very self for his bride. That's the kind of love. It's not, woman, serve me, I'm the man. It's not that at all. It's submitting your life and giving away your life to the life of your spouse, of your wife. Now, if a man does that kind of love, then there was no issue with a wife submitting to her husband because it's not in a domineering kind of way. It's in a total and complete, unconditional 
love. And it's a picture of Christ and the church. And in verse 27, he presents the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, I've heard this verse used. I've heard this verse, first of all, I've heard it said before, well, Jesus isn't coming back for a filthy church. He's coming back for a glorious church. So the church has to clean itself up. To say that the church has to clean itself up is taking away the very point of this verse, is that we can't clean itself up. Christ has cleaned us up for himself to present us to him. He has sanctified us. He has cleansed us with the washing of the word to present us to himself pure and clean. You, the church, we are a pure and clean bride without spot or without wrinkle because it's not our works that cleanse us or sanctify us. It's Christ who has cleansed us and sanctified us. I just had to add that in there. Verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife love himself. And it goes on to say, For we are members of his body, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. And then Paul ends in 32 and 33 saying, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this view of the husband and wife is speaking. Paul is speaking here of Christ and the church. So they are parallel pictures. And it begins with love and submission. That's the heart. But then he goes on and he he starts in chapter 6. He starts with children obeying your parents in the Lord for it is right. Children obeying your parents in the Lord for it is right. You know, and I do believe that speaking of parents and children you know, in the household, but also is speaking of those in the church. It's speaking of elders in the church, those who are, you have taught you in your faith, those who have led you to the Lord, those, those pastors and those things that have, have been put in the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that that may be well with you. But fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So you see how this love and mutual respect and honor is, is worked out all together in the, in the context of not just husbands and wives, but children and parents, and also to servants and masters. Verse 15, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters in the flesh with fear and torment, and do it as unto Christ. For then you will be doing the will of God from the heart, not as unto men, but as unto the Lord, knowing that the Lord will reward you. So the practical outworking, and we could go on, but the practical outworking of righteousness is putting off the old life and putting on the new life. It's coming out of the kingdom of darkness, knowing that you are in the kingdom of light and you are kingdom citizens. And it's to let your households in your lives be lived out of love, mutual submission, and honor. And then to finish up chapter 6 verses 10 through 20, uh, he goes back to standing strong against the powers that would oppose us. So in verse number 10, he says, finally, my brothers or my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and to put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having to, done, uh, to do all to stand. 
So now he's talking about this spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare, you know, I don't believe is really what we've taught spiritual warfare is for, you know, a while. I don't believe that we're, you know, I do believe there are things that will try to come against us. But I believe that Christ has already gained the victory. I believe that the devil is defeated, that Christ has made an open show of the devil. He destroyed the works of the devil. You know, and I believe that, you know, we are more of a problem to us than the devil is. We're probably our own worst enemy, to be honest with you. So, but he does talk about, Paul does talk about here, this wrestling that we do. It's not with flesh and blood. So again, I believe he's kind of going back to your problem is not with each other. Your problem is with these spiritual powers and, and these things that would take our minds away from living in unity and living in unity with God and unity with one another. So what's his solution? The solution is to put on the full armor of God. Now, I want to point out a couple of things about the full armor of God. These are things that you already have in your possession. It's not that you need these things. You already have them. But it's to put them on and to use them in your everyday life. So what, are, what is this armor of God that he mentions here? Well, first of all, he mentions the belt of truth. The belt of truth. We all have the truth. It's the truth of the Word of God. He talks about the, the breastplate of righteousness. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He talks about having your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. He talks about having the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So all of these things every believer has. And he has them to do a couple of things. Listen to what he says. He has them, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That you would stand against. That you may, verse 13, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. To stand. To be strong in the Lord. For the devil has no power over a believer. You can go through the whole New Testament. Here's what the devil does. He lies. He's the father of lies. He deceives, he roars to try to scare you, he sets traps, he throws darts. None of this stuff is real authority in your life. It's not real power. The only power this devil has or any enemy has is the power that we give him and the power that we give the enemies of this world and the enemies that combat us in our minds. The Bible says to give no place. We just read it. Give no place. Give no place to the devil. Give no place to these accusations and these things. The Bible, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Give no uh, thought to these accusations of unworthiness. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. So the devil is a defeated enemy. So we're not using this stuff to fight for victory. Oh, i got to fight the devil and get the victory over the devil today. No, your victory was won 2,000 years ago. This armor of God is to stand against everything that would try to come and remove you from that place of victory. So you're not fighting for victory. It's not like, okay, I have to fight a battle today to try to win the victory. Number one, you have to see the victory's already won through Christ. And number two, you have to see that I'm not fighting for victory. I'm fighting from a position of victory. I already have victory. But there's things that would try to come in my mind and against my life that would try to tell me otherwise. So I put on truth. I put on righteousness. I put on the gospel of peace. I put on faith and salvation in the word of God. And I'm able to stand against all 
the darts that the devil tries to throw at me. And then he says we need to be a praying people. Verse 18, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all, pre- uh, all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And Paul says, and pray for me too, for I am an ambassador. So we put on the whole armor of God, which we already have, and we'll be a praying people. And when we do these things, when we understand that we are one body in Christ, when we understand that we are all that have been born again are a new creation, we understand we live in the kingdom of light, we understand the principles of love and mutual submission and honor and headship, when we put on the full armor of God, for it's not our flesh and blood that's our enemy, it's these powers that try to come against us. When we stand against those and we're praying people, we pray for one another and we, we pray for our leaders, we can truly live as one body in Christ. One redeemed people called out of all the world, now living together with every wall of partition broken down and we live together in one body. That is the message that Paul is sharing with us. That's the message of the letter to the Ephesian church. That we are one redeemed people together in one body living for one Lord.